0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. In this week's episode, we're going to be talking to James Zimmerman, who has a new book about ready to come out, about the Peking Express, which is about a hostage situation that happened in China in 1923, nearly 100 years ago, its 100th anniversary, coming up on May 5th. This hostage incident is the closest thing I've found to the Titanic on the rails. This was an international incident that destabilized the Republic of China and led to some different media things in the United States as well. So without further ado, let's jump into the show. Uh, Well, thank you for coming on the podcast today. We're very excited to talk about your new book. Um, So let's go ahead and jump into the very first question. Can you set the stage for us a little bit? Um... Our audience may not know a whole lot about what's going on in China during this time. Um, Your book talks about um, sort of the political situation and how um, this is coming about right after the end of dynastic rule. Um, So can you set the stage for us a little bit? What's going on in the republic and sort of the, the fight between central and decentralized control?
1: Yeah. I mean, after the revolution in 1911, I mean, which which ended, you know, the the Qing dynasty, um, you know, the country ruptured into a, you know, regional political factions. And each of these factions were just jockeying for power, you know, and the country was in a constant state of warfare. I mean, this was, you know, which was called the warlord era. You know, and China as a whole was really struggling to to be a united country. You know, everything was regional and everything was divided. And, you know, what happened is, is they had this system of local warlords not just at the provincial level but at the very local level and these warlords you know they dominated the countryside you know and they did so in a way that even in peking even at the in the headquarters you know they struggled to maintain unity and they struggled to keep everybody together you know so the warlords were they only answer to themselves you know they they in effect were their personal armies or the warlords and the warlords basically ran things you know at the local level like a mafia state you know they 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 taxed the people they had their own armies and and they didn't even contribute a lot of them didn't contribute to the national level so now in, in June of 1922 you know which is which is the summer before the incident you know they they installed a new president and president his name is Lee Won-hung He was installed as a president. Actually, this was the second time he came back in that role. And his goal was to unite the country. His goal was to have a national constitution and more importantly, to disband, you know, the warlords and their armies, you know. And so but, you know, after 10 years, you know, after 10 years of warlord intrigue and corruption and destruction, President Lee you know, had this ambitious plan, you know, to unite the country and do away with the warlords. But, you know, and this was a welcome relief, you know, by the Chinese people and also the international community. You know, they hoped to put the warlord period behind them. But the problem was, is that they had so many of these disbanded soldiers floating around, it created a stability issue. And then what you saw was, what we saw was that the warlords were constantly fighting one another, fighting the so-called bandits, who a lot of them were just the disbanded soldiers. And a lot of them were just poor and starving. And, you know, they were begging to get into anybody's army. They wanted to go back into an army. You know, but then those that could not find jobs within, you know, other armies, you know, they became more. um they became outlaws, you know, and that's something at in 1923, you know, the existence of all of these bandit armies um was the existential threat to the Chinese government, you know, every day in the in the press. There were stories about swarms of men armed with rifles and daggers and they sweeping the countryside, you know, kidnapping people, looting factories, hijacking trade routes. And it was a real existential issue for the government. You know, so what the, the strategy of the warlords was to snuff them out, you know, it was to snuff them out. But what they did was, in addition to snuffing out the bandits, they actually were, you know, snuffing out the villages as well. So that's kind of like, you know, that's the overall stage that we're at, you know, in May of 1923.
0: Something that your your book talks about that I just found really interesting, uh, specifically about the relationship between the warlords and the bandits as they're trying to snap them out, um, was the use of railroad stations as, you know, like a place, I, and you talked about like a beheading, and they would put the head in a railroad station which i just find to be this really interesting thing because at the on the podcast we've talked about the railroad station as a center of town um as a place for ideas to flow and for the state to you know put propaganda in and things like that and and that's just like like an extreme version of that since it's the center of town everybody's going to see the bandit's head and know that hey you you don't want to be a bandit in this area the warlord will catch you Um, I just thought that was a really interesting portion of your book that just kind of blew my mind a little bit. Yeah, I mean, it was really a um,
1: kind of a stage setting fact is that at the train station or out in front of the village gates, you know, they would be hanging in baskets, the heads of the of the bandits. And I mean, it was a message new that, you know, if you mess around, you're going to find out what happened. But the problem, too, was, you know, who's a bandit and who's not? If someone has a complaint about the government, they're considered to be antisocial, you know, considered to be opposing the government. And they may lose their head over that. So, I mean, when you talk about bandits is how do you define, you know, and the army and the warlords are going to define anybody that challenges them, you know, as a potential bandit. You know, but there was definitely at the train stations and at the village gates, you know, they were hanging the heads of bandits just to send a message to, you know, um, to avoid, you know, joining the bandit ranks, to avoid joining revolutionary ranks and so forth. And, you know, so that that's definitely something that really set the tone of things, you know, as I mentioned in the in the
0: beginning of the book is this is the environment that people were living under. Yeah, for sure. Um, And it's sort of like reminiscent in my mind, at least of like this almost like medieval, you know, maybe Revolutionary War, like style of communicating um, these things, which Mm -hmm. is interesting, too, because the railroad eventually becomes a symbol for modernity for the Republic of China and as like a a thing that's going to show um, especially the expression we're going to be talking about, um, you know, the the power of the central government and that, yes, we're open for foreign investors and things like that. Um, so can you talk a little bit about just how the railroad became this symbol for modernity for the Chinese? Ecoupler?
1: Yeah, I mean, the thing is, this
0: is also the railroad stations were a means of communicating to people.
1: You know, that's where there was telegraph offices. And that's also where they had bulletin boards where they would post news and information. So it did become a communication center. So, um, But the railroads were something very, you know, very, very important to China and its plan to be on a path of modernizing. I mean, when you look back at um, transportation in general, you know, before the railroads, I mean, people basically had to either walk, you know, or there was watercraft or there was horses, sedan chairs, you know, wheelbarrows, you know, that's how they got around. You know, the China's roads at the time were basically impassable, you know, and actually using the rivers and the canals was the way uh, of moving around, you know. And unfortunately, you know, to go from Shanghai to Peking, it was a five day journey. You know, so, but the introduction of railroads to China was very slow. You know, keep in mind, you know, in comparison, the U.S., you know, first railroad was in 1827. You know, the first railroad in China was 50 years after that in 1876. And it was only a nine mile, you know, wide line from Shanghai to the port of Wusong. And get this, the government at the time, you know, in 1876 was the Qing Qing government. And they were, you know, debating whether even to do this. And so they approved this short railroad and then they revoked it, the approval, going back and forth, back and forth, trying to decide. And And then they allowed it to be built. And then after one year, they tore it all up and tossed it in the ocean. And that was primarily because there was an issue about competing with the canal boats and destruction they perceived destruction in farmland so the railroads were really slow in coming to china and then keep in mind too you know that you know at the at the turn of the century you know early 1900s there was only like you know 10 miles of railroad track in all of china where the united states you know there was 193,000 miles you know crisscrossing the continent you know bringing the bringing the trains and communications to every frontier town in North America. I mean, China was not only behind the times this is they were in, a, in another world. You know, so that they this was perceived as a way to modernize and then after you know after the you know the fall of the Qing dynasty 1911 the the government even though it wasn't completely unified, the government said we need railroads to modernize, we need railroads to move our agricultural product, our our coal, we need to move that uh, so that we can drive our export markets. Uh, and that's something that you know was viewed as very, very important. So um, until they started the process of you know, building new lines. And one of the key lines, you know, that is important for the Peking Express is the Tianjin Pukou line, you know, and that would have that eventually would link Shanghai to Peking, you know, and so and that was an important line. It was actually built, you know, together by both German interests as well as British interests, and then the you know the British took the the southern portion and the um, the Germans took the northern portion. And, and, um, and so they, they, when they built that, you know, that was, um, you know, it was foreign money, but the, the Tianjin Pukou line was actually, you know, was the first Chinese own, you know, rail line. So, and it was very, very important so that for the modernization of the country, because again, it took several days to get from Shanghai to Peking you know, by, by ocean going vessel. And so this was a chance to kind of unify the country drive its commercial growth.
0: Um, something that you brought up a little bit there that I find to be interesting into this is the, especially because eventually this becomes an international incident that we're going to talk about um, is the West's sort of interests in all of this. Um, can you talk a little bit about like, why would Germany want to to help out with the Northern Persian and why would um, things said Britain help out with the Southern version?
1: Well, um, before I do that, I just I need to rephrase. I made I misstated the, you know, the, the Tianzhen-Pukou line was actually built by both the Germans and the and the British. The Germans actually built the northern half and the British built the southern half. All right. Now, for them, for both of the, you know, the foreign governments, as well as the, the foreign companies that were involved in Ch- in China at the time, you know, they saw this as a big opportunity, not just to finance the railroads, but also to supply all of the equipment, to supply the rails, to bring in engineers to design these train stations to complete the the rail lines and so forth. I mean, if you were to look at the train station, and and they do exist, like the Lin Chung station, which is part of the story, still exists. That was built by the Germans, with cutstone technology. I mean, it'll be around for a long, long time, you know. And so now you have, I mean, you have infrastructure that was built and it actually supported the, the national agenda, you know, for the governments involved with the railroads, you know, but there was, um, the French were involved. The U.S. was involved. A lot of governments were involved in participating in the railroad development because it made economic sense for them. In fact, the, the cars, You know, we could talk about that in a few minutes, but the cars, the carriages that were
0: used, you know, on the express trains were from the United States. Um, And speaking of those cars, they were kind of unique. In your book, you talk about them not being made out of um, wood, um, but steel instead. Can you talk a little bit about why that decision was made?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was... um... You know, this was something that was important, not just in China, but globally. You know, it was the um, in 1918, you know, um, it was over 100 passengers who died in a train accident in Nashville, Tennessee. And it was a blame. A lot of the blame was on the use of wooden cars. You know, but what happened was uh, during a train accident, a lot of the wooden cars just crumbled or they caught on fire, you know, and that was an issue. And so in with China, they were looking at these new, very high tech and all steel carriage which at the time was considered to be very, very high tech. And so the Chinese government, the, the railway, the um, Tianjin Pukou Railway, Bought these cars from the United States, which were actually manufactured in Pittsburgh and Wellington, um, excuse me, Wilmington, you know, um, by the Press Steel Car Company. Now, what they did was they actually manufactured the cars in the East Coast of the US, and then they shipped them. You know, they rolled across the railway all the way to San Francisco. When they got to San Francisco, they dissembled the cars, completely dissembled them and then shipped them all the way to China, up the Yangtze River, where they were actually reassembled, you know, using, you know, both labor and engineers from the U.S. And they put these together to be put into use. The idea was, OK, these things are made, you know, with solid steel and it's not just high tech, you know, to prevent <clears throat> to prevent accidents. You know, like the the Nashville tragedy, but also because we're talking about bandit country, you know, these trains can go through areas of China that might not be completely safe, you know, and so in the Peking Express, this is actually was um, like a, an army on wheels, you know, they had, a, they had a, a police uh, train guards. That were actually on board with sandbags and machine guns. There were 17 police officers on the train, and what they do at the time of the robbery is a different story. But they were on the train at the time. You know that this was, um, you know, that the train was going northward. Uh, northward.
0: <clears throat> um, can you talk a little bit about how this train was sort of promoted? Um... You talk in your book about it, how it's this luxurious experience that, you know, people are taking their tourists. Um, a lot of times they're going to different events. Um, and the analogy that kept popping in my head was like like this weird version of the Titanic where it's billed as this huge um Uh, You know, unstoppable train that's going to be, you know, a very fun ride. It's the peak of luxury and modernity. And then obviously things don't go too well. Uh, But can you talk a little bit about just how it was billed to people?
1: It was not, I mean,
0: not just the railroad companies
1: that were promoting the safety You know, and also the manufacturers of the of the rail cars actually, Press Steel had an office in China, and they were very active in promoting the safety of their cars. You know, so you got all these, you know, the railroad operators that are talking about how safe it is, but you also had the tour books, and one of the leading tour books of the time, you know, talked about how um, interesting it was to be you know, traveling in China, and I'll read a passage from the leading tour guide at the time, and it was kind of dismissive of the fears of banditry. And here's the passage, it says, all in all, travel on the regular routes is as safe in China as it is in any other part of the world. Robbers and pirates exist, of course, and there is usually a revolution or rebellion going on in some part of the country but these things add add zest rather than danger to the journey. I mean, this is from the handbook, the Traveler's Handbook for China, 1921. So that's the environment that tourists are reading about, wow, I've got to make this trip, you know? And And another interesting thing is, is when I went through the diaries for the passengers of the Peking Express, all of them, talked about how they were told how safe it was and how wonderful this trip was and not to worry about bandits or revolutionaries or whatever but it was promoted so much as a safe trip that it was like you know they didn't even think about you know the the risk of banditry
0: yeah absolutely and and since we're talking about the people in the diaries and what they thought let's um introduce some of our characters here we have Um, A whole bunch of hostages, but there are some um, some some highlight people Um, I I know one of them is Powell, who is a um, a correspondent, Um, we have a Rockefeller on there and a couple other people so can you kind of give us the highlights of who's who's on
1: sure um, I mean. I mean, you have to imagine yourself at the at the Shanghai Nanking Railway Station in May of 1923. I mean, this is a station just like the stations at the time of the U.S. I mean, big cavernous, you know, marble stone, you know, and then you look and you scan across the room and you see all sorts of different people. You see holidaymakers, you see you see businessmen, you see families and so forth. I mean, the whole—I mean—scanning the room is like is a reflection of the whole social fabric, you know, um, at the time in Shanghai. I mean, there was British, there was Americans, French, Italian, Germans, Mexicans, people from um, from Europe, all over Europe, Russians. There was from India, and there was all sorts of different Chinese speakers, all speaking different dialects, like Shanghaiese or other dialects. I mean, voices from all over, all over Asia, like from Malaysia or Vietnam or Thailand, you know, so the whole social fabric, you know, representative of Shanghai were there in that train station. I mean, some of the unique, you know, characters, as you mentioned Powell, right, he was a publisher you know, on the ground in Shanghai, he had been in Shanghai since 1917. He was the Chicago Tribune's man on the ground. He was actually on his way to tell a big story about a um, reclamation project on the Yellow River that was um, it was uh, carried out by the American Red Cross you know the yellow river there was constantly floods and famines and issues and so the American public got involved to to build this reclamation project and so this was big news and so Powell was on the train and a whole score of other reporters were on the train to go to northern China to cap, to cover you know this event so Powell was there and then also on the on the um, on the train was a guy by the name of Lee Leon Friedman he was a wealthy car dealer all right now he and his brother um, operated dealerships across china and they sold you know top top brands of the day in fact he was the leading you know exporter for dodge at the time and then supplied the chinese markets for dodge cars and automobiles um, interesting thing about this guy was that before he moved to China in 1918, he and his brother operated air shows you know, around the world. In fact, when they moved to China, part of the reason why they moved there was they were doing air shows in Japan and in China. And these air shows were at the time, they were the barnstorming shows where you would have biplanes flying and doing all sorts of stunts. You know, they got out of that business only because, you know, they they saw that it was kind of a deadly business, you know, too many too many pilots getting too risky. But then they wanted something a little more tame. And so they invested in China and became the leading car dealership um, in Shanghai. And so Friedman was on that train. There was all sorts of all sorts of other um, business operators, exporters from around the world that were on the traveling salesmen. And they also, when you scan the room within the train station, you see groups of, of, of Jewish men who were part of the Jewish community. You know, that was a big merchant's community in Shanghai at the time. And a lot of them were there for um, specifically and would, um, they were, ended up being hostages, but they, were, they called themselves the Shanghai Cousins because they were all related by marriage in some way. But they were stockbrokers and they were bankers in Shanghai. You also, in that room, was also US, two U.S. Army majors and their families. You know, in 1923, the U.S. had several large army bases in the Philippines you know, after the Spanish American war, the US set up, um, you know, army bases in the Philippines. And so you had these two families that were um, actually on vacation and they wanted to see China and they had their, their young children with them. So they were in the room. And then you also have, there was all sorts of, um, you wanna say bad guys or mysterious, you know, passengers so sort of a Shanghai based Italian lawyer by the name of Giuseppe Musso who actually represented the opium interests the opium monopoly he also represented drug smugglers gun runners people that operated gambling houses and so forth so he was on the train all right but as you pointed out there was someone from the rockefeller family and that was lucy aldrich lucy aldrich was on her second you know circumnavigation of the globe this was her second trip to China. And she not only was the sister-in-law of John D. Rockefeller Jr., but she was also, you know, her father was a, a former Senator, you know, US Senator from Rhode Island. And her brother was currently a member of Congress, you know, so she was very well connected politically, very high wealth. And she was actually in China to buy artwork, Into buy fabric and things that she collected over the years. So she was there, but when you scan the room, you see three women that were wearing these basically Easter bonnets, and they kind of stuck out in the crowd. But they felt they were there, and they were ready to enjoy that long trip from Shanghai up to Peking. And so um, it was not just Lucy Aldrich, but she also brought with her a maid as well as her secretary. So it was a whole little, you know, group that was there um, with Lucy Aldrich. So you had a lot of different passengers, you know, from all walks of life, you know, that were all thrown together, you know, not just at the train station, as you saw them, you see them preparing for this journey, journey, you know, but um, they were part of the the whole social fabric, you know, of, of Shanghai. uh, of those that were visiting Shanghai at the time. But from there, the journey began on May 5th, 1923, which by this, um, which is, you know, this year was a hundred years ago. So, and that's something that the journey begins on May 5th. And by the way, you know, I will be doing an event um, in Shanghai on May fifth this year, and we'll be doing a tour of the train station, which is now the Shanghai Railway Museum, uh, but also a media tour in Shandong, where everything happened. You know, on May sixth and seventh. So, all these passengers, as you scan that train station room, you know, all of them have no idea what is about to come. You know, but the, tr- the journey begins from
0: Shanghai on May 5th. Definitely. That's such an interesting con- idea that, like, this is just a representation of um, Shanghai completely. We have um, people from all walks of life going on this train. Um, can we talk a little bit yeah. about the bandits now? So, what were the motivations? Or, oh, I, I, I guess we should start with who is the leader of the bandits? <clears throat> um, you mentioned that he comes from a prestigious family. Um, how does he end up being abandoned in leading a, a a collection of bandits?
1: Yeah, um, the the bandit chief's name is Sun Meiyao. All uh, right, he does come. He he came from a prestigious local family. It was a family of scholars, you know, in southern Shandong, um, and he he saw himself as a soldier, and he was a soldier. He he was um, an officer in one of the local militias, and he was disbanded. You know, and he wasn't really happy to be disbanded, and he ended up um, in conflict with the the provincial warlord. You know, um, and they were trying to, um, you know, Sun Meow, and his group was trying to get control over his region where the local warlord was actually in control, you know, mostly operating a protection racket for, you know, for the, the mining companies there. And so they were there was clearly a dispute between the uh, Sun Miao and his group, you know, and as well as the provincial army group. But Sun Miyao was very intelligent, very, very charismatic. You know, and he tried to be, he tried to work within the system, but, you know, the local warlord, whose name was Tian Chung Yu, General Tian, was did not want the competition. He did not want Sun Miao competing, you know, with his efforts to collect protection fees from the local mining company. So what did Tian do was he murdered Sun Miao's brother. And hung his brother's head, you know, at the train station, you know, sending a message to Sun Miao that, you know, he was in control, he was in he was in charge, and so Sun Miao felt that he needed to do something, and that was that he was going to challenge Tian and Tian's control over the area, which is the southern portion of of Shandong. His um, and so his idea was to to derail and rob, you know, the Peking Express and to take people hostage and to force not just, you know, General Tian, but also the Peking government to give him what he wanted and to give him control over his region. And so his, um, and the only way he felt that he could do that was to kidnap you know, not just, you know, the forwarders, but also some of the wealthy Chinese, upper class Chinese that were also on that train.
0: I think it's, it's really interesting. So when we think of bandits and, you know, train robberies and hostages, we almost always associate them with trying to get the money that's on board. Maybe if they take hostages, they get money um, down the line from, from governments and stuff. But this is much more of like a political um, situation than a, than a, a simple robbery
1: yeah it was definitely a political issue. Um, but keep in mind too, is is that bandits were not just Sun Mayow, you know, because he and his group, which were disbanded soldiers. um a little bit over half of the of the bandit army, you know was um you know were ex-soldiers. you know, the rest were basically die hard um you know uh, criminals. You know, they they were drug, some of them were drug addicts or opium addicts, and some of them had vendettas against the warlords because families were slaughtered. Um, and some of the more interesting members of the bandit um, army are people that actually um, that worked in in Europe during the during World War One. They were part of the China Labor Corps. And they were the and Shandong province specifically was a recruiting ground for almost there was almost two hundred thousand you know um, uh, Chinese nationals that were recruited and sent to Europe to um, to work on the Western Front. Basically, what they were doing was burying the dead and digging trenches. And so these these there was a lot of men from Shandong that went to Europe and they actually learned continental languages they were able to speak in you know English and French and when they came back to China they didn't want to go back to sub um, you know to go back to to farming you know and they actually felt like well I have skills I've I've learned to operate machinery I speak foreign languages and so they were pretty sophisticated and but there were several former members of the China labor corps the who were in Europe that were part of the bandit army so the whole bandit the bandit group the bandit army you know which was actually 1000 strong you know were kind of a mixed bag of not just disbanded soldiers you know but also were you know peasants that were were starving were drug addicts and so forth you know but sun miao saw his army that had potential and he felt that with the right leadership, he would be able to drive his 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 bandit army to achieve what they wanted to achieve. So it was a mixed bag, but it was clear they were motivated to to get what they wanted. Yeah.
0: And I think that just speaks to his leadership, that he's able to keep this army together with so many different, you know, reasons on why people are there. Right. Yeah. So, so now that we, let's talk a little bit about the actual events. So, the the initial takeover of the train. Um, you mentioned that there were seventeen um, police officers and people there to protect the train. Um, so, so, so what happened? How were the bandits able to take <clears throat> over in spite of the police? Okay,
1: so what happened was is that they chose a site, which is in the was in the middle of the countryside, you know, and it was a location that was away from you know, any train station, you know, but they chose a site that was on a a slight incline and on a curb. So the locomotive had to slow down, you know, so and in the middle of the night, what they did was they removed the, they actually seized um, the few train guards that were on duty, you know, but they also were able to remove the fish plates that kept the rails together. And when you do that, and they took off 16 rails, but they did not take the rails off of the sleepers. So when you look at it, um, when the when the engineer operating the locomotive, he did, it didn't look like there was any missing rails. So he kept going, and because the the fish plates were removed and the you know were, the, the the rails could not stay on the the sleepers. And so the locomotive basically was going relatively slow because it was on a curve and an incline and basically tipped over, you know. And then so, but also on that too, um, you know, you know, Sumiao had his spies, you know, within the railway police and he was able to figure out that on that night, Most of the railway police that were working along at the train stations and on the railway, actually on the rail line, were gone. They had all, all the senior officers had gone up to um, Tiansen, which was almost 400 miles away, for their boss's birthday party. So, you know, there was very few
0: people left behind. And for those passengers, you talk about three different classes of travel on this train. Um, first, second, and third. Um, when the bandits came on board, were they all treated the same or were there distinctions made based on how much wealth somebody had or how much <clears throat> Yeah, I
1: mean, there was actually, the the bandits, um, seized when they seized the train, they went in three waves. Okay, three waves were first to go through the cars and then take the jewelry or any jewelry, watches, any valuables that they could sell And then the the second groups came in and they took things that they could barter for food with the villagers, like mattresses and and fixtures. And then the third wave came in, it was to seize hostages. All right. Now, as you mentioned, there's three classes of trains within the train. They focus mostly on the first class in the first class had the the, most of the forwarders, the high wealth forwarders, as well as the high wealth Chinese. Um, And they also went after some of the, with the second class as well. They ignored, totally ignored the third class because they figured they had nothing. You know, within the three classes, you know, within the first class, if these state each, there was, there was, um, there was state rooms where two people, two beds in each state room. In the second class, you know there was bunks where four people per state room, and in you know, but within within the third class, it was just hard seats. It was you know, every, and standing room only. So it was pretty, it pretty much packed, you know. But they focused the bandits focused you know primarily on the first class and then the second class, and the number of people that they seized, you know, was over twenty five foreigners initially, and then close to 75 you know Chinese you know and and that those were the hostages that they took before they started a trek to the mountains
0: and was that just assumed like the uh, western countries with these foreigners would have like more negotiating power at the end of the day so um, if you were to say um, uh, kill the Rockefeller then you're not going to get the same type of negotiation power afterwards or just kind of anger United States too much that kind of thing or yeah well they the thing is is they the 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 bandits did
1: threaten to murder the the foreign hostages they did that several times but they never really did that you know the only the only porter that was uh, that was killed was actually in the original hold up But he was killed because he he started to fight back and he was um trying to use his his weapons against you know the bandits so um but yeah they would the with the bandits would threaten to kill the foreigners but they never really carried that out because they knew that the value of the foreign hostages was too important and also they did not want to um, you know, burn any bridges that they may have with the foreign governments because they saw the foreign governments as actually helpful to their cause. I mean, it was part of the hostage diplomacy, you know, strategy that they had was, was to try to leverage the, the captives, the foreign captives against the foreign governments to put a pressure on, on, the, on, the, on the Peking government.
0: Um, Well, one thing I was struck by in your book was sort of the reactions from these passengers as they were taking hostage, specifically the story of Robert Allen and his son. Um, Can you tell our (laughs) listeners about um, their immediate experience with the band?
1: I mean the, the um Allen family as well as the others that were on the train were absolutely stunned. I mean these people I mean they were awoken in the middle of the night 2:30 2:45 in the morning you know when the train was derailed there was a um um and then uh, not not only just as it was derailed but then they they heard You know, a lot of firing of the guns and breakage of glass and so forth. And as the bandits started to go into the trains, I mean, this family, you know, basically was in a state of panic. You know, they were very concerned. I was like, what's happening? There's outlaws that are attacking the train. So the Allen family, there was the three of them, you know, the husband, wife and a 12-year-old son basically hunkered down in their room you know, Major Allen had, you know, cash with him and he thought maybe this is robbery. And so he distributed the cash between his wife and his son and then they waited. And then when the, the first wave of the bandits came through they gave up the money and then the bandits left and they thought, oh, that's the end of it. That's good news, you know. But then they started hearing things and they heard people being dragged down the aisles. And so when they were dragged down the aisles, you know, Major Allen thought to himself, they're taking hostages, you know. And so he was pleading with the bandits to not separate him from his family, you know, not pull him down the hall. His wife was having a meltdown. Of course, she was nervous and scared, you know. And so and then you had the son who actually stepped in and said, you know, Dad, go with them and I'll stay with I'll stay with Mother. You know, and uh, it was kind of a heroic moment for him, but the bandits saw this 12-year-old, a pretty tall kid. They saw him as an adult, and they took him and his father, and then they left, they left the mom behind. You know, and both Major Allen and his son Bobby were dragged off the train, and they became hostages. You know, so they, their experience was, was was rather typical of the other passengers that were on the train. You know, and in the book, we go into details about, or I go into details about, you know, the different families and different people and their
0: experiences in, in, in how they confronted the bandits that came. Um, so as you mentioned, so they're going out in the middle of the night um, as hostages. And your book talks about their trek too. And I'm probably going to pronounce this wrong, but I'll give it a shot. Uh, Payetsu? Something like that? Oh, uh, Patsuku. Patsuko, okay. Patsuko. So they, they begin their, their trek there. Um, what, what was the point of getting to that mountain? What was the, um, the strategic, I guess, element to it?
1: Well, this Patsuko mountain, which was actually from the, the point of derailment, was over 30 miles away. You know, and that was the ultimate goal over the six weeks. Is that they wanted to run to the to the hills, to the mountains, and this is where their base of operation was. You know, this was um, you know, Patsuku, you know, was what we it was a, a mountain stronghold. It was as a history, you know, of 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 holding bandits and revolutionaries. And part of it is because it's situated in basically, you know, a, a mountain pass, and there's only one way to get in you know, and so it was an ideal location to bring the hostages there, but getting there would take time. And so the first initial trek was to the top of one mountain called Yellow Cow Mountain. And they did that the first day. And then, you know, unfortunately, they they were pursued by the army that was shooting and shooting at them as they were trying to run for the hills, you know, and so when they got to the first mountaintop, you know, they the bandits were hoping to start to negotiate from there, but the army didn't want to do that. You know, so, you know, then on the first night the bandits were able to escape northward. And so for the next two and a half, three days they were on the run. And part of the reason they were, were able to success, successfully run away from the army was because of, there was a storm. There was a thunderstorm, and rainstorm, and they basically, the army could not keep up with the bandits and the hostages that they were dragging across the countryside. And so they were able to get away to another location, not to Pazuko Mountain, but to a another mountain temple where they would negotiate for a week. It was after a week at this location, which is called the Dragon Door Temple, that they continued on. They ran away for a second time to Paotsuku Mountain. So, I mean, over the course of five weeks, they went over 30 miles, you know, and they dragged across the countryside the hostages that they had. You know, and a lot of times they did that in pursuit with the with the army in pursuit. You know, and we're fending off, you know, getting shot by the army, you know, but it was like two different armies fighting and one in retreat, you know. So when they finally got to Pazuco Mountain, and that was that they were there for over four and a half weeks you know, of negotiations and um to try to, to work out a deal between, you know, the Peking government and and with the bandits. So but it was um the trek across the countryside was something that took a toll on a, a lot of the a lot of the passengers.
0: Something that uh, we're talking about just the hardships of that trek. Um something your book talks about is how Powell uh, and the other hostages ended up so exhausted, and then Powell like, leads what you call a sit-down strike. Um, can you talk us through how the hostages got to that point, and then obviously how the the bandits responded to this? Uh,
1: that yeah, that, I mean, this was this was um, you know on the on the third day, you know, and Powell was, you know, I mean, they were exhausted from nonstop running from the train. I mean, in this, you know, run for the hills um, strategy, you know, the the hostages didn't seem to, to feel that it was working, you know, because they were just running and running. And then sometimes they would go up a hill and come back down the same hill, you know, but keep in mind too, that Powell was also, and and a lot of the hostages were up very late drinking and smoking in the car until one o'clock in the morning. And so by the time they got to bed, you know, it was early morning hours. And then, you know, the the train robbery happened at 2.45 in the morning. So they, you know, they were trekking across the countryside with very, very little sleep and with very little food, you know. So it got to a point where they got extremely frustrated. And Powell said, I'm not going any further. I don't care what you do to me. I'm done. You know, this run for the hill strategy is just not working. And so the reaction um, from some of the band, most of them were the younger ones. You're talking about teenage boys who basically beat Powell and beat him pretty severely. The other hostages, you know, including, um, you know, the the army majors that were witnessing this, they thought, you know, that Powell was going to get killed. You know, he was being beat up, you know, by the bandits, basically for not moving forward. He gave up, you know, um, after he took a beating. And then there was the intervention of some of the Chinese hostages, you know, and they became some of the heroes in the story. There were several Chinese that were fluent in English, and there was two especially mentioned in the book was trained, you know, he, he graduated from Brown University, the other one went to Cambridge, and they were fluent in English, and they acted as interpreters, and they actually intervened to stop, you know, Powell from getting beaten to death, you know? So they were heroes in the story, and so they stopped the beating, and then at that point, the bandits realized that these people are exhausted. They have some of them don't have shoes. Some of them don't are not dressed properly. And so what they started to do was either carry the hostages or they started they got they rounded up farm animals and burros and donkeys and horses and started putting people, you know, on on these pack animals. And then they completed their destination to, you know, what what is called the Dragon Door Temple. Which is not Patagonia Mountain. This is a, basically the first stop, and, and they actually stayed at that location for a week. And by the end of that week, they were um, the hostages started to re- receive better food and so forth. So, um, but Powell's actual protest was able to bring a realization to the minds of the bandits that look, these people are just are exhausted, you know, from running in the middle of the night and we're soaking wet. You know, and, you know, we don't have proper shoes. And they got really tired of going, you know, they're going around in circles. You know, you're going up to the top of a mountain and coming back down. It's like, what's the point of that? You know, I mean, they're trying to run away from the Army. But, you know, are we really getting anywhere? What's, What's the end game here? So, I mean, the foreigners were started to question what the bandits were doing, you know, at that point. You know, but um, but anyway, eventually they made their way to the Dragon Tower Temple and negotiations
0: uh, began. Um, so obviously this eventually becomes a big international incident. And it's around this time that uh, people start hearing about the um, the incident and start hearing from the hostages and how they're doing and and um, hearing from the bandits and what they want and what they're threatening. Um, can you just walk us through, you know, the immediate um uh, sort of um what what am i looking for not impact immediate uh response i suppose um from the united states and, and other uh governments
1: yeah i mean it was interesting because you had a train that was full of journalists of reporters you know not just Powell, but there was a number of reporters it was actually a reporter by the name of Larry Lerbus who actually escaped from the bandits the first day? So here he is. He's a journalist. He escapes and he's going to start writing about this thing, you know. And so that's you know, you know, the wire services at the time, you know, they had people on the ground, not just embedded with the with the hostages, but they had escaped, and so they started writing. And the interesting thing was was that. Um, John D. Rockefeller Jr. heard about it from an Associated Press journalist who showed up at his home, you know, um, in Seal Harbor, Maine, when Rockefeller was working his garden on a Sunday morning, you know, a reporter comes up to him and said, hey, do you have any comments about the fact that your sister-in-law, Lucy Aldridge, is a hostage with bandits in China? And Rockefeller's like, you're kidding me. You know, that it's got to be a mistake, you know. And so he basically dismissed, you know, the, the questioning by the AP journalist. And then, but he went, you know, made a call to the secretary of state. And it said, you know, have you guys heard about this? And they said, No. You know, they had no idea. The State Department, Washington had no idea. But later that day, when the press reports started coming out, they realized, hey, we've got an international hostage crisis situation here. It was the media, the journalists that drove the news globally. The whole incident, which is called the Chung incident, you know, captured the interests of the world because of all these daily reports. You know, and it's something that, you know, in very short order, you know, the governments that had hostages, they all showed up at Linchang. You know, they showed up in southern Shandong to figure out what the Chinese government's going to do to get our nationals released. You know, so the U.S., you know, the, the British, you know, the Italians and the French all had hostages. And they all sent diplomatic, you know, representatives to be on site to see exactly what the Chinese were going to do, you know, in terms of how they would negotiate with the hostages.
0: I, I think it's really interesting, and especially the fact that they, the bandits were allowing communication um, down the mountain on a daily basis. Um, and I was trying to work my brain around exactly why they would be doing that. But I, I think perhaps it's because they want these stories out there. They want this to continue to encapsulate and like really have the focus of the world on them so that the foreign governments can continue to kind of pressure China to get this
1: solved. Abs- yeah, absolutely. I mean, in fact, the if the bandits were reading the newspapers too. You know, they were reading the newspapers and saying our story out there and they, they loved it. You know, in fact, there was a bit of frustration by... You know, the negotiators are saying, you know, it's it's in the papers and they can see, you know, I mean, the bandits were reading the reaction of the Chinese government in the papers. They were reading the reaction of the U.S. government, the French government, the Italian government. They were able to read about who the hostages were and they realized, wow, we've got some big fish here, you know, so the, 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 the journalist involved actually kind of drove the story definitely
0: Um, something else your book touches upon we've touched on a little bit so far in this interview um is that the there was a progression in how these hostages were treated um during the initial trek obviously um the conditions were really bad and there wasn't um always enough food and things like that um but once they got to um Um, to where they wanted to go. They started treating the hostages a little bit better. There's an American rescue mission that improves conditions a bit. Um, Can you talk a little bit about that transitionary period and and why that occurred?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was the the American business community, the American Chamber of Commerce that was based in Shanghai, was very active in developing a rescue operation, basically providing food, clothing to, to the hostages. Um, And the American Red Cross was also involved with that Um, the US government wanted to make sure that this was something separate from them, you know, so they actually appointed, there was a gentleman uh, by the name of Carl Crow, who was, um, who was the lead of the American Red Cross um, branch office in Shanghai who took the lead on this, he got funding and clothing and food from different sources and set up a little bit of an operation where they were actually, you know, hauling up to the the bandit stronghold. They were sending up food, bottled water and so forth. Um, And that all started, you know, after about day five. You know, and so they were, they moved fairly quickly, and when they finally, when all the hostages were up at Patsuku Mountain, you know, it became a regular, every day there was um, shipments going up, and it had to be hand carried. You know, basically it was on the backs of men, Chinese men, that were carrying it up to the mountain, and part of that, it was interesting because they also started a mail service. You know, because that well, you got these foreign hostages that wanted to hear from families that wanted to write letters, plus you had all the journalists that wanted to send, you know, um, you know, their thoughts on the things of the day. So they started what was called the bandit post. And the bandit post became kind, I mean, it was the means of communicating between the bandit camp, you know, with the hostages, the bandit leaders. And with the rescue operation, which was down in a mining compound called South One, you know, and so. Um, but the band of post is kind of interesting, and this is covered in the book. Is that, you know, the leader of the American rescue mission created his own stamp. All right. And these stamps were just, were actually a joke. It was something to, you know, to actually keep people from getting bored. So they had actual stamps and they required that you put the banded stamps on the letters. You know, I mean, this became kind of a, in the stamp collection world became kind of a big deal. And to this day, you know, banded post stamps are highly sought out for you know, in, you know, the stamp collection world.
0: Yeah, that stamp thing is like the coolest thing I've ever heard. That is so interesting that we still have those stamps. I mean, I'm sure there's lots of letters, so it makes some sense. But just like actually having a stamp from the the bandit post just sounds like. Yeah. I totally understand why that's a prize stamp, uh, even if I don't collect stamps myself. Yeah. Um, okay, so something that we haven't talked about um yet, but was something that came up quite a bit in the book is that these hostages often uh escaped um can you walk us through so we started with twenty five hostages. How many do we end up with um at the end?
1: Well, some of the uh, hostages were released over time, you know because when they started negotiating, you know the negotiator who was an American guy by by the name of Roy Anderson. He was requesting that, in good faith, you know that the hostages release certain, you know, certain um, of the uh, of those that are captive, you know that the bandits release some of the captives. So, um, you know, we went from about twenty five, and then towards the end, it was down to eight. The final amount was eight, you know. And so, over the course of the six weeks, there was uh, there was some that were released. Um And but the, the bandits were sure to keep a hostage from each of the four nationalities, you know, and so the, the one captive that was in the worst physical condition was the Italian lawyer by the name of Musso, who was uh, physically not well, and quite frankly, should have been probably released early, you know, but the bandits refused to release him because they wanted to make sure, you know, that the foreign government stayed involved. You know, and so, um, you know, so throughout the dynamics of all of that, you know, there was uh, gradually release of certain people. One, believe it or not, there was a woman, the the, the sole woman hostage that stayed for most of the time. She was the bride. Of the Mexican hostage um, Manuel Vieira, who because they were they were newlyweds, they did she did not want to leave him behind, so she stayed with him the entire time. The bandits basically told her, "You can leave," you know. They try they tried to get rid of her, you know, but she said, "I'm not leaving," you know. So she stayed behind with her husband, you know, almost for the duration of like four weeks. You know, and finally, she was encouraged to leave. but um um, but the bandits actually was it was funny, but it was an interesting part of the story because she was not going to leave her husband's side. You know, part of it, too, was that her husband also was a captive in Mexico the year before. And so and she thinking the way they operate in Mexico, she was making a comparison with, uh, you know, with the Chinese, you know, bandits that she felt that it was best for her to stay by his side. And chances are that he w- that he would survive the ordeal if she was next to him. So, but anyway, that's a side story. But um, overall, that there was a during the negotiation process, uh, some of the the captives were released um, and over time.
0: Um, so something your book talks about that I also thought was was really interesting was that eventually, um, so Powell talks about eventually associating with some of the bandits. Um, and you talk a little bit about acts of kindness that either the hostages show the bandits or um, different uh, physicians that are around, you know, tending to wounds and things like that. Um, so I'm interested, is this like a sort of an example of a Stockholm syndrome? Was this humanitarian? Was this strategic? Was it all three? Um, what was going on there? Well,
1: I mean, you I mean, these the, both the, the bandits as well as the, the foreign hostages were living together in the same temple compound. So, and a lot of times they were eating the same food, you know, and they were they also had the same sicknesses. And there was a couple of bandits that had some pretty bad, you know, um, either gunshot wounds or, you know, other injuries. And one of the the Army majors is that Dr. Allen was actually a a physician. And he was supporting, you know, he was doing some surgeries, you know, um, most of its minor things. You know, there was some of the bandits that were seriously wounded that they could not help, you know. But at the same time, they were, they befriended, you know. And over time, a lot of the, the hostages did indeed befriend some of the hostage of some of the bandits, you know, and some of the side the side stories and all this is that, you know, some of the bandits actually went to work for the hostages after they were after they were released, you know, and because they became friends of, you know, of some of the hostages, um, you know, and that was an in- that was an interesting twist of events towards the end. You know, because some of the, you know, um, you know, those that stayed to the end, the bandits did not want to join the army. And so they had a better deal if they, you know, made their way to Shanghai and started working for, you know, the foreigners, you know, in fact, one of the, one of the the bandits actually went to work for um, Friedman's automotive dealership and worked for him for over a decade, you know. so. Um, But anyway, so that those dynamics, you know, there was a lot of reasons why the the hostages,
0: you know, wanted to befriend the bandits. I'm I'm thinking of just like, like how awkward it's got to be to like you're going to work for the person that used to be your hostage it's your first day you know the your coworker walks up to you and goes oh how did you meet the boss you know and it's like oh yeah you know held them hostage for a little while <laughs> it's just got to be an interesting dynamic you know going forward with these people that see each other all the time and they become friends but it's just that that really weird way of meeting each other
1: yeah i mean it was but they were they were all Living together, you know, for six weeks, and after a while, they they you know began to respect one another. Um, and then, um, overall, the whole story ends differently for a lot of people. It's a very climatic ending, you know, in the book, you know, and you know, without any kind of a spoilers, you know, comment here, but you know, there's all of those dynamics of working closely with the you know, between some of the hostages and the bandits, um, you know, at the end, you know, was something that caused, you know, many of the hostages to really reflect upon some of the the excesses of the Warlord era. Again, the worst of all that came out in how this all ended.
0: And so without spoiling the end of the book and how all the intricacies happen and things like that, um, let, me, let me jump ahead a bit. Um, so I think we, we've we touched on this a little bit, but if we can just go over um, more specifically you, how the attack on this train was sort of like an existential crisis for China itself, for stability and control and its sort of um, place in the international scene.
1: I mean, the, the Chinese government was in sheer panic after this happened. I mean, this had become the the trains in general and this specific this specific train line was the backbone of the country i mean there was the the country was beginning to rely upon export sales of of ore you know of coal you know and the trains were the ones that were driving um, and and keeping the country at least somewhat unified so the government the government was in a sheer state of panic when this happened you know they said if this can happen you know the way it did you know the the country is at risk you know so as the backbone of the the economic and strategic backbone of the country was at as was at risk because of this incident you know, and in um, the, the foreign governments as well, we're calling on the, the government, you know, that you need to do something because the train, you rely upon the train, foreign business relies upon the train. You know, tourism, if you really want to develop the tourist market, you've got to do a better job at this. And so the government was really in a state of panic. And, and, um, but initially, you know, they they allowed the local warlord to go after the bandits, which wasn't a very smart strategy. would Because, I mean, if, if there were more of the hostages that got caught in the crossfire, you know, that could have been worked very negatively against the Chinese government. You know, but this was, I mean,
0: this was an attack on the country's stability, on the country's economic backbone. Um, you mentioned in the book conspiracy about uh, perhaps the Chinese government having an involvement in this incident. Um, can you talk us a bit about why people thought this was the case or maybe think this was the case? Um, you know, maybe what was the Japanese government potential motive? Um, and is there any credible evidence that that's true? Well, this,
1: there there is evidence that there were passengers, Japanese passengers that exited the train, the last stop before the robbery. Um, there were no Japanese nationals that were um, or that were hostages at all, you know. So, and then there was also evidence that some of the weaponry of the bandits was Japanese guns and rifles. So those were concerns and there was a lot of speculation about Japan's involvement. You know, there was at the time, there was a number of writers that expressed the opinion that Japan, because it's stand to, to regain, possibly regain Qingdao and then could regain control over parts of Shandong, that this was a perfect way of triggering a crisis, you know, and that's something that, you know, was expre- expressed in the media. But after this was all over, the US government said that it was unlikely either of Japan or actually of Tokyo's specific involvement. But that didn't mean, you know, that you know the Japan was aware that this was going to happen or and was able to get its people off the train beforehand. You know, but were they complicit in the in the bang- in the robbery? You know, that's something that's never been proven either way. But keep in mind too is this 1923 and you know 10, 15 years after this incident, you know, things turned very ugly with the way Japan treated China. And you um, know, so that's something um, you know that that's that's a concern. But looking back specifically on the on this incident, there is is no clear Prove that the Japanese government was involved.
0: Gotcha. Um, So we talked, I talked about this a little bit before about how this incident reminded me of the Titanic um, as this like safe, luxurious, modern um, trip that people could take and that there, you know, no need to worry about it at all. And then, you know, obviously tragedy strikes. and funnily enough, obviously the Titanic has a very popular movie associated with it. And so does this event. Um, can you talk us uh, talk to us a little bit about the connection between this and the Shanghai Express?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's the, the movie that uh, there was a, Hollywood did a movie that is remotely based on the incident in 1932. Uh, it was called the Shanghai Express and it was starred uh, Marlene Dietrich uh, it was actually nominated for Best Picture, as well as, um, you know, for other other awards. It eventually won an Academy Award for Cinematography. Um, so, yeah, um, it's not exactly the same facts. I mean, it was actually, it's very, very different. There was no march to the countryside. There wasn't bandits. It was revolutionaries. The train was going south and not north. That's why they call it the Shanghai Express. Um, So the facts were very, very, very different, but it was about a train story in exotic China and that's, you know, those facts are basically very similar. Now, how did this come up was that the screenwriter, you know, Harry Hervey, who, um, who wrote the screenplay for the Shanghai Express, in 1923, he was working in Asia as a cruise ship operator, as a director, and he was traveling through Asia during this time. And he was inspired by the day-to-day media coverage surrounding the incident, and so that's how he got the story idea in reading about it. And so, um, but the there was no or none of the characters actually in the movie are really reflected um, you know, in the true story. You know, you could say some are very similar, but not exactly the same. And for in fact, the, the the leading line within the the um in the movie, you know, that was um by Marlena Dietrich. She said, it took more than one man to change my name to Shanghai Lily. That's not attributed to anybody. You know, in the real story, the Peking Express, you know, so but it makes it the whole the fact that they did the movie makes it very interesting. And it's actually part of the, you know, the whole lure behind, you know, the this historical event. So it's it's really cool that there was a movie, even if it was remotely based on, on the facts.
0: Did people at the time know about that connection? I'm assuming they did like. Um... Oh, yeah. Yeah, they are. Probably- oh, yeah.
1: I mean, because um, in 1923, Lin Chung was the Lin Chung incident was on everyone's mind. And it was a big issue. It was a big deal because it was in the media every single day, you know, for six weeks. And then after that, there was talk about, well, how do we make sure this doesn't happen again? So, you know, for um, 1923 and 1924, and all the way up to 1925, you know, when there was actually compensation that was granted to the ex-hostages, you know, even, you know, there was a, it was in the, it was a, in the media and on the minds and in discussions, bilateral discussions between the governments. And the Chinese government, you know, but it was soon forgotten after that, you know, so when 1932 came around, people may have been able to say, oh, yeah, it was based on that story, you know, so I'm sure that people were thought that way.
0: Um, and just looking at so even beyond that movie and beyond Hollywood, there were a lot of um, things that came out of this incident in the memory of this incident. Um, and your book mentions a certain political figure that looked at the uh, Peking Express incident as an example of class warfare. Um, can you talk, us, talk to us a little bit about what lessons Mao uh, took from the situation and how it influenced him going forward?
1: Yeah, Mao talked about the Ling Chung incident, you know, um, um, and specifically he quoted comments when he made a speech in 1925 in Hunan he made comments you know that reflected that you know the bandits were basically part of the you know um the peasantry that was fighting the landlords you know and the warlords you know and so Mao you know reflected on this the incident as as an incident that required you know better organization so he was actually selling the idea of the party and selling the idea of the party's organizational skills. You know, there was in the Chinese media, you know, and there was over the years discussions about how Mao complimented Sun Mayow. You know, but I'm not sure if he really complimented the bandits so much as reflected on how they were just like the other peasantry, the workers that were in a class struggle and trying to, um, you know, and to get things back from the landlords and the warlords, you know. So he, but he used it more um, to reflect upon political strategy and the need for the party to to take leadership, you know, to go up against the warlords and so forth. So Mao, Mao was watching this and, and definitely, Used it as as an incident, you know that was important to his messaging.
0: One thing I I'm kind of curious about: to what extent is this incident still talked about in China? Is it like a, a big part of popular memory? Um, before reading your book, I had never personally heard of this incident, um, but I'm kind of wondering why that would be. It's such an interesting. Thing that occurred um i keep comparing it to the titanic but i don't even think that's a fair comparison because that was a you know one and a half day thing versus this being five weeks of all these different international players um so so i guess it why is is it bigger uh, in china than it is here what's what's sort of the lasting pop uh, well
1: i i mean the, the the whole incident was basically forgotten and part of that was because you know i mean 10, 15 years after the incident, the Japanese invaded China, you had the Second World War, you had the Chinese Civil War, you know, then communist takeover, you had the Cold War, you had the Cultural Revolution, and then eventually you had China's opening to the West. I mean, all these things happened and nobody really had time to think about, you know, China's great train robbery of 1923. I mean, it was there, but it was not written about. A lot of folks knew about it, but there was nobody writing about it. And what I did was in developing the story was not just to look in archives, government archives in the U.S. and U.K. and China and other parts of the world, but also I was able to trace the the hostages, you know, the rescuers and, and meet with their families you know a lot of families this was part of their personal history i mean there's one family that had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pages and photos and letters and they kept everything and that's the that's the pinger family you know they have a, they had a, a treasure trove of documents about the incident now the guy that negotiated the deal um his name is roy anderson his documents, um, you know, made their way to the US and inside his family documents in a farmhouse in Western Massachusetts is the original deal, the original agreement between the bandits, you know, and this uh, Roy Anderson as a guarantee. He gave them a guarantee. So, I mean, so these documents are preserved. These documents are preserved in family records, you know, in in a way that, um, you know, really, um, you know, it's something that makes this story come out that was the story was buried, you know, it was buried just based on history. And but it wasn't buried in the family files. And when I approached a lot of these family members, you're talking about grandchildren, you know, and these grandchildren of hostages. These grandchildren are in their 70s and they're like, how come you're coming to me now about my family history? But it's just amazing the records that are, um, that was able to pull out and get and reflect, you know, really reflect on, you know, what they were thinking about while in captivity. So, but anyway, that's what makes it a unique story and makes the book unique. It is, it's a people story.
0: Yeah, no, and, and hearing how you did that research, it it definitely makes sense how the book is written. As you're saying, it's very individual based. Um, you really start to connect with some of these characters and the idea that of like having all these and it makes sense, right? They're sending mail down with the bandit post, they're writing about it for journalism and all these other things it Makes sense that there's a lot of documents about this incident. Um, but that's just such a cool thing, I'm sure as a, as a historian journalist, um, yeah. to be able to dive in and actually, have the tangible records of how these people are feeling and what they're doing at any given moment. That's, that's like the crazy yeah. thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, what do you hope that, uh, readers take away from your book, um, and listeners take away from this interview?
1: Well, I think that the, uh, in addition to basically being a people story, I mean, and something that is, a is important historically, You know, it's about China's history. It's about um, the U.S. history, American history in China. It's about the history of foreigners that lived and worked in early 20th century China, but also, too, the excitement, the fast-paced, you know, story. It's a fast-paced story, and I'm hoping people will enjoy that as a and I've already received feedback and advanced praise it says it's a page turner it's fast moving but it's also the um, it's very climatic you know how it ends and I'm not going to spoil it for readers but there's an ending in there that reflects upon the uh, excesses of the warlord area it doesn't end well for some people you know but it's something that is important to reflect upon. It's also, you know, it's important, it's an important story because it reflects upon, you know, some of the issues that are important today. You know, so, um, but anyway, so, but also too, I think um, as my, as the publisher for the book said to me, he goes, everybody, Everybody loves a good train story.
0: Thank you all for listening to this week's episode of Roundhouse Crosstalk, a podcast hosted by the California State Railroad Museum. We hope you enjoyed this interview. We've put the the link to James Zimmerman's new book in the description below for you to pre-order you'll also get a, a link to his website to learn more about all the different talks he's doing to help uh, promote the book and get more information about the peking express out there to a wider audience thank you again for listening and we'll see you next time